Hi everyone, it's Carrie. I want to offer a quick correction to our reporting. In our 28th episode, we made an error and attributed a video referenced by Prosecutor Thomas Binger as the Elijah video to Corey Elijah, whose legal name is Corey Washington. In fact, it was recorded by Elijah Schaefer, a reporter for the conservative media company The Blaze. We regret the error. Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the courtroom events that we covered this past week, including the efficacy of Prosecutor Thomas Binger's use of the video evidence of events leading up to the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum. My conversation with Abby is coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thanks once again for joining us. You're welcome. So this week, we listened to much of the testimony of Detective Howard, and most of that was Thomas Binger playing video clips on the courtroom TV monitors. Were you able to divine from what you heard much of a strategy on Binger's part in terms of playing these clips? Well, I think overall he was going for context. That's what he argued to the judge. I think that's what he was trying to convey to the jury. You know, do I think he put the pieces together in a way that left me no alternative but to understand his theory? No, but I could put the pieces together nonetheless that this was a young man who was full of his own bravado, carrying a weapon that he proudly described as lethal and not heeding any of the warnings coming his way that he should stay put, don't go looking for trouble. And I think, you know, ultimately it led up to the dramatic scene of him shooting a guy in cold blood. Everything he was doing with the videos was meant to lead up to the dramatic moment that suddenly Kyle Rittenhouse shoots a guy. I want to begin by focusing on the video taken for the show, The Rundown Live, with Kristen Harris offering the commentary. What did you make of Binger's reasons for continually playing what was essentially commentary 
as that video played? Why did he insist on playing the video with sound, particularly after he was told the first time by Judge Schrader that that was hearsay? To me, it sounded like Binger didn't quite believe the ruling. And so he kept pushing. The ruling was interesting. The judge, it seemed to me, was kind of mugging for the camera as he made that ruling for the court of public opinion when he traced the history of the hearsay rule and how complex it is. It was kind of unnecessary. It was a, a fine ruling, commentary, that is the opinion of the person narrating the video is classic hearsay because inevitably the prosecutor wanted the narration in for the truth of the matter asserted. The matter asserted being that Kyle Rittenhouse shot for no good reason and had no justification. But on the other hand, I understand Binger's point of view, and Binger was sort of vindicated in his point of view during the judge's speech about hearsay. It's murky sometimes. Judges have enormous discretion always. And I think Binger thought the narration fit within a rather broad exception to the rule against hearsay that's known as present sense impression. That is when a person speaks at the very same time as something is happening that's affecting the person's senses. And fair enough for somebody who's kind of narrating in real time that that might be true because there's not the time to reflect or manipulate. And prosecutors kind of get cocky about that exception. It's used quite frequently in domestic violence prosecutions that what complaining witnesses say, you know, if they do not appear in court to testify is often offered as being an exception to the hearsay rule, either present sense impression or spontaneous utterance. So that both of those things are supposed to be not very cognitive. They're kind of spontaneous and natural. And I think that's what Mr. Binger was trying to suggest that Harris videos were. And probably Binger had had some success with that in the past, but the judge was having none of it. You said it was a fine ruling. As a defense attorney arguing in D.C., for example, what would you have expected the judge to rule on similar evidence? That's a wonderful question. I would have objected, no question about it. I would have objected strongly that it was hearsay, that there is no way that you could characterize somebody who's filming for the purpose of sharing it or broadcasting, that that's anything other than hearsay. I, I think I would have a strong objection. That being said, do I think that most judges would rule in my favor? No, I don't. And, you know, the D.C. Superior Court bench, which is the state court bench, is touted as, if not the best state court bench in the country, then among them, because our judges in the District of Columbia have to get confirmed by the Senate as if they were federal judges, which maybe makes them a little more elite educated with perhaps a little more prestigious experience. But, you know, on the other hand, judges, by and large, in my experience, practicing in a number of different jurisdictions, including the District of Columbia, tend to be persuaded by prosecutors more than by defense lawyers when it comes to the admissibility of evidence. So I wouldn't have been surprised to lose that objection. I would have been prepared, but I still think it was a fine ruling and it was an appropriate objection. 
it seemed that the moment in Harris's commentary that prompted the defense to object was the use of the word militia to describe Rittenhouse and the group that he's with. Right. And I wonder whether there were diminishing returns to the value of that commentary and references to militia once Binger played it the first time. It seemed to me that his insistence on continuing to play it to give the jury a sense of the environment and to create a sense of the defendant's state of mind wasn't really worth the blowback that he got for it. And more importantly, sort of obfuscated some other very important evidence that came up in the video clips, both of Harris's interview and of Rishi McGinnis's interview, where Rittenhouse was talking about having only lethal weapons, no non-lethal weapons. And also the commentary that he was able to get in from the video from Incognito of the man with the yellow sweatpants saying that here's this guy out here offering medical help. And a few minutes earlier up the block, he was pointing a semi-automatic rifle. Yep. My very strong sense here was that Binger was losing the forest for the trees. And so I wonder if you could take me through the sidebar particularly, and do you think Binger got bogged down in the sidebar, and why do you think he became so fixated on getting this commentary in? You know, it's interesting. I thought the footage from Richie McGinnis was especially compelling, and I would think that's where the focus should have been. Now, do I understand why Binger wanted the stuff in from Harris and in particular the reference to militia? Yes, I do. But he should have known. He should have anticipated an objection to the word militia. It seems to me he could have done something in advance of of that part of the footage. He could have stopped it. They could have approached sidebar. He could have said, look, there's one word. I'm sure that the defense is going to object to it. I'm willing to skip past it or I'm willing, judge for you to instruct the jury that that's one person's opinion and should be given only the weight that the jury sees fit, but it's an opinion. That's not the point of this. My theory, and I don't mean to psychoanalyze Mr. Binger, but my my theory is that he felt so chastised and scolded by the judge because of the hearsay situation that he didn't manage to really caption the videos that he then proceeded to play. By that, I mean he didn't really tie them together or provide the kind of emphasis the videos needed in order to be the powerful narrative that it could have been. I don't think he used the detective as well as he might have. That detective is a kind of a neutral bystander, as it were. Yes, he's law enforcement, but he investigated and he looked at many, many videos, and his would have been a really good, credible, reliable, authoritative kind of voice had he used the detective more to kind of caption the various headings that he was after in showing that video footage. Yes, I hear what you're saying. And I think it goes back to something we talked about last time, which is that Binger does not seem to have had a clear 
and consistent theory of the case. His theory seemed to kind of ping pong between Rittenhouse being a malicious militia member and a youthful, reckless cop wannabe. And I mean, there were a lot of opportunities to pursue the latter strand of thinking. I don't think there was much of anything to pursue you know, the more malicious and malignant characterization that at times Binger wanted to project onto Rittenhouse. I think that's fair. When you construct a story as a trial lawyer, you kind of want to aim at the lowest common denominator. What will most people sign on to? And I think it's very hard to persuade most people that another person, and maybe especially a teenager, maybe especially a white teenager, or a white teenager lifeguard is evil, malicious, malignant, sophisticated. I think the bravado-filled, reckless, full of himself, full of his power, armed to the nines, young man with no regard whatsoever about the value of human life around him, that, that would have been an easier story to tell because the jury wouldn't have to hate him then, but he would be kind of familiar. We've all met that person, that person who's kind of full of bluster, so much bluster that it crosses a line because he's armed. I think Binger believed the evidence spoke for itself. And this is not unusual for prosecutors in my experience. Prosecutors, you know, tend to have the evidence in a case. They've got a kind of bucket of evidence. And there are so many videos and so many portrayals of Rittenhouse as over the top, heedless, looking for trouble, being a kind of big man on campus. I think he thought the jury maybe could connect the dots and he didn't need to. And that was misguided. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the next part of our conversation, we explore more of Prosecutor Thomas Binger's tactical choices as he presents video evidence through the testimony of Detective Martin Howard. As we get into the footage of the shooting itself, it was interesting that there was no objection to any of the commentary offered by Reg Incognito. I would imagine partly because the initial commentary had to do with violence perpetrated by members of Black Lives Matters or Antifa, which was convenient for the defense and makes me wonder why Binger would choose to play that part of the commentary. Here's what was powerful for me is you were really hearing a person's reaction in real time. You know, talk about present sense impression. That commentary in the exact moments that Kyle Rittenhouse was discharging his firearm was very powerful because the narrator was stunned. You know, it was as if he was saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, he's 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 shooting. You know, a guy is down. And that's useful to the prosecution, not that other stuff about Black Lives Matter and Antifa, which I think is a red herring. 
but that live in the moment shock and dismay, I think that is part of the prosecution's theory. Now, do I think that that's the most convincing part? Look, he needed some emotional content in his narrative, Binger. And that's what he got from this footage. Very emotional, but chaos. And I think that was some of the context Binger was after. Chaos plays both ways. And I don't think he recognized that, that on the one hand, you know, it's chaotic and nobody else shot, only Kyle Rittenhouse. It's sort of a double negative kind of a narrative that isn't really good storytelling. Chaos worked very well for the defense, though, because people are often afraid in chaos when everything around you is out of control and you don't know what's going to happen next and you're fearful and the street is full of armed people and or angry people. Chaos can be absolutely consistent with self-defense. And I just don't think Binger quite grasped the paradox of chaos. You know, on the one hand, this was chaotic, but nobody else shot another human being. It wasn't necessary. It was the kind of chaos that's sort of to be expected in a demonstration. There's a certain amount of chaos when, you know, there's a large group of individuals who have taken to the streets. His point was nobody else shot, but chaos was so consistent with a young man, even a young man full of bluster or full of his own power or his, his own sanctimony, you know, who armed himself to come and protect property, but then suddenly everything was chaotic. That seems to me could lead to a narrative of a person reasonably being in fear of his own life. What you're saying goes to another aspect of Binger's choices during the playing of these videos. He was not using the detective to help guide the viewing of these videos. He was not using testimony in any way except to acknowledge that this was found on Twitter. Right. For example, in the moment where we saw the shooting happen in the Drew Hernandez footage, what we see immediately after that is Kyle Rittenhouse run through the cars, around to his left, circle around back, and immediately get on the phone, and then after a few moments of being on the phone, run away. And we also see Richie McGinnis take his shirt off and go to tend to Joseph Rosenbaum. Now, I was sort of shocked that in the initial playing of that footage, we did not hear Binger ask Detective Howard one question about his experience of watching that footage and yeah. what it prompted him to do as a detective. So, so that's the purported purpose of having the detective on the stand, that a detective gets to connect the dots if it relates to why he did XYZ in an investigation. So that's a perfectly legitimate purpose. Defense counsel are wary of detective or police officer commentary or use of hearsay in explaining why they conducted an investigation. But the videotape is actually video of the incident itself. The detective certainly could talk about what he did next and what the meaning of that particular footage was. A couple of thoughts about this. Um, first, there's just such a stark contrast between how the defense used videotape in their opening statement. Defense counsel was kind of the narrator. He was the Ken Burns, as it were, in this particular documentary film. And he really tied it together and used the video to tell a story. 
story. When the prosecution did it, there was no narrator. He didn't make use of the detective. There was no Ken Burns. There was just kind of a, a video version of a document dump. Let me just play all this stuff and the jury will figure out what I'm after. And I don't want to be too much of a Monday morning quarterback. There's a fine line between guiding a jury and beating a dead horse. But I don't think Binger got close to beating a dead horse. He needed to connect the dots for the jury. He needed to tell them what the significance was of the video clips he was showing. He needed to use them for emphasis. And he needed to use the detective as a kind of narrator for a slow-mo part of the testimony, part of the video and the testimony combined. He needed to kind of freeze the frame and have the detective talk in detail about why some moments were absolutely critical and what they revealed. And the detective would be allowed to testify to that because it was in the context of an investigation. And it just didn't happen. It strikes me as a little bit funny, and I keep coming back to this, and I I don't mean to clobber the prosecutor. You know, I think Binger is smart and able. I don't know why it felt to me like he was wearing blinders. Maybe he just was kind of cocky and he thought the evidence was absolutely clear and he didn't need to do too much because there was so much evidence and so much video footage. But there was a story to be told. And this case was all about storytelling. And this was his chance also to rebut what had happened during opening statements when the defense made such artful use of the video. Now the prosecutor had a chance. It was it was his turn. This was going to be his rejoinder. And, you know, he had like an all-American police detective to, to do the telling. It just was kind of a wasted opportunity, I think. You know, he also at times gave me the impression of someone who hadn't really studied for the test. You know, he just wasn't as prepared as the defense was. Didn't seem to have a mastery of the facts. He certainly didn't have a mastery of the video material. And he hadn't settled upon a point of view. And I don't think it's because he's not smart. I just think he wasn't prepared. And I do think he's pretty tone deaf. I agree with you that he wasn't reading the audience well. And he it, I don't know whether he was prepared or not. I don't think he had a firm grasp of the story he wanted to tell. It's not that he didn't know what the evidence was. I think he didn't really understand its, its worth and the parts of the evidence that he had that was especially powerful and the nuances in the case. Maybe it's an occupational hazard of a career defense lawyer, but I keep thinking there was a kind of arrogance that Mr. Binger thought he had this, that he had this case, that he had this kid dead to rights because of the number of shots, because he shot a guy in the back, because there was no reason, because the guy was unarmed, because he's a 17-year-old who's from out of town and was armed with a semi-automatic. I think he was a little intoxicated with the power of prosecution and maybe is not so used to a decent defense. I, I don't know. Well, to your point there, I do think that it's worth enumerating the pieces of evidence we saw in the video clips that were played during the testimony we covered this week. There was Rittenhouse's acknowledgement that he was only carrying lethal weapons. There was the man with the yellow sweatpants commentary that this same guy who's offering medical attention was pointing a rifle a few minutes ago up the street. And then some of the commentary from Kristen Harris kind of warning Rittenhouse not to stray off the lot because 
you know, it's dangerous out there and you guys should be guarding the properties, not wandering out into the street. Right. And then finally, zeroing in on the Drew Hernandez footage specifically and the exact sequence at the very end, as the shots happened, the number of shots by Rittenhouse, him quickly running around the back and his first action is to pick up his phone and make a phone call. Yep. Right. Another person takes off his shirt and tries to use it as a tourniquet or something. Yep. If Binger had spent his time focused on only those elements and used them as the stepping stones, as the chapters in a story, then I think he would have gotten a lot further combined with focusing in on the reckless part of the charge. This is a reckless homicide that they're charging him with, with respect to Rosenbaum. Yep. I feel like he would have been a much better shape with this jury. I agree. And you, and using the detective more. Exactly. You don't hear the detectives on the stand, but it's so interesting. You just don't hear from him. And it sounded to me from what I heard, he would have connected well with the jury. He was just doing his job. He was doing an investigation. He's the kind of neutral voice in the whole thing. The other thing that occurs to me as storytelling for whatever it's worth, Rittenhouse's behavior is such reckless teenage male behavior. It feels like it's out of a video game or something. You know, when, when you hear incognito saying words to the effect of what the hell? Oh my God, he's shooting now. And It's, you know, bang, bang, bang. And then he's, you know, running around and on his phone. It's as if Rittenhouse doesn't understand the gravity of what he's done. From Incognito's telling, this wasn't a a young man who was afraid. This was a young man who was kind of manic. Would have been good to freeze on, on that and to get the detective to weigh in. The other thing I thought was puzzling was the one thing Binger made a big deal about was the number of seconds between the first shot which was not Rittenhouse, but was Joshua Zeminski. I'm not sure why that was so important because those two or three seconds doesn't feel like a lot to a jury. Right. I mean, I think he was trying to have it be that there was a period of time between those shots and when Rittenhouse shot. Now I'm aware because you can kind of do this in a courtroom when, you know, a witness says, oh, you know, I'll never forget the face. I stared at it for, you know, for 10 seconds. As a defense lawyer, you don't really want to embrace that 10 seconds because 10 seconds can feel like a very long time in a courtroom if you just look at the hands on a clock. And I think probably Binger felt the same way about, what was it, three seconds? But to a jury, unless you really do an experiment and show them how long it can feel, that's nothing. That would be consistent with a guy thinking maybe somebody's shooting at me, which I'm sure is what the defense is going to do with that. I don't know. I didn't get that. Did you get that? Why he would focus on the seconds? I do think that he was, again, allowing the defense narrative that it was Zeminski's firing of the weapon that provoked Rittenhouse to be in fear of being shot and that that provocation is what caused him to fire at Rosenbaum. But so why the focus Why the focus on the seconds? Did the prosecutor want to, want to say, okay, that had nothing to do with him? It was yeah, I think he was saying 2.7 seconds or whatever it was. That's a long time for it to be the provocation. It wasn't instantaneous. I think that's mm-hmm. what he was going at. But I agree with you that it was a fool's errand to 
go at it that way. It was buying into the defense narrative. And it may be that Wisconsin law is such that there is no good argument for prosecuting Kyle Rittenhouse for the murder of Joseph Rosenbaum. But if you're going to make a case, I think the best case that they had was that he was reckless in in the level of force that he brought to this in not having alternative levels of force available to him so that, you know, he did not have to literally bring a gun to a knife fight so that he had an alternative short of a semi-automatic rifle in order to protect himself, you know, from hand-to-hand combat. So that's a great theme and would be a great story if that were told in closing. Just that phrase, he brought a gun to a knife fight because people are familiar with that kind of adage. That's good storytelling and good advocacy. Because in one phrase, it makes plain that this is a case about recklessness and bravado and upping the ante where it was not necessary. Well, this was, as always, fascinating, Abby. I really appreciate your perspective on all of this. And I look forward to having you back in the coming weeks. Me too. Thanks for having me. That concludes this weekly recap of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we continue our look at the testimony of Kenosha Police Detective Martin Howard and as we pay particular attention to video clips played by Prosecutor Binger that cover the aftermath of the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.